Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa program. Welcome back to Africa Aware. On this episode, we will be discussing kleptocracy in Equatorial Guinea with Tutu Alicante. Kleptocracy is defined as a government or state in which those in power exploit national resources and steal them. Despite boasting one of Africa's highest GDP per capita rates, much of the population of Equatorial Guinea remains in poverty, with one of the world's largest gaps between GDP per capita rates and Human Development Index score. Freedom House provided the country with a score of 5 out of 100 in its most recent Global Freedom Index, indicating that the country is classified as not being free. In my interview with Tutu, we discussed the situation citizens face in the country as a result of governance failures, the Western enablers that facilitate this kleptocracy, and what international actors must do to bring an end to corrupt practices across the region and abroad. Tutu Alicante is an anti-corruption advocate and international human rights lawyer from Equatorial Guinea. He is the founder and executive director of EG Justice, a non-profit organisation that stands with the people of Equatorial Guinea and uses national, regional and international fora and tribunals to promote the rule of law, defend human rights and combat kleptocracy. Tutu worked previously as a legal consultant with international NGOs promoting legal accountability and transparency in the extractive industry. Tutu has appeared on numerous occasions as an expert witness at trials, congressional hearings and UN forums. And he has authored numerous articles about human rights and corruption in Equatorial Guinea. Thank you so much, Tutu, for joining us here today. Welcome to Africa Aware. It's a pleasure to be here, Yusuf. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So for our audience and listeners that haven't been equated with you before, could you kindly go into some of your journey towards where you're currently at? Well, I should start by saying, Yusuf, most people introduce me as a lawyer and all that professional stuff, and that's great. But first and foremost, you know, I'd like to have my audience know that, you know, I am just a dad. I am a husband. I'm a soccer coach to my kids. I am a regular human being, right? So this human rights work, the anti-corruption work, all these other rule of law work does not take away and should never take away from the fact that, you know, we're human beings with lives and, and, and all that, right? I went to the U.S. in 1994 thinking that I was going to become a journalist, right? So it's, it's, it's quite great that we're doing this because this is you know, originally the type of thing that I saw myself doing, you know, just to tell a story back then, 1994, about what was happening in Equatorial Guinea. Oil had just been discovered. You had all these oil companies flocking into Equatorial Guinea. And you could clearly see how this country was going to have a future defined by oil, right? How the economy, all the social aspects of the country, the politics, everything was going to be defined by oil because you know, that suddenly you know, was the only, the only game in town. So I came to the U.S., or I went to the U.S., rather, uh, thinking I needed to become a journalist to tell a story about, first of all, what oil was going to do in my country, but perhaps more importantly, you know, what was happening in my country in terms of rights, in terms of access, the, the access that people had to the revenues and to the different benefits that should have come from that oil. Right? 
uh, one thing led to another and uh, became a lawyer, right? And much to my demise, I guess, you know, I became a human rights lawyer. And I say much to my, much to my demise only jokingly, but as you know, Equatorial Guinea is a, a authoritarian country, one of the most authoritarian in the world. And uh, when you become a human rights activist, when you become a human rights lawyer, or when you start paying attention to issues of human rights, rule of law, demo- uh, democracy, anti-corruption, very quickly you make yourself not useful to that country, you know, and that that became my case, you know, very soon I started getting threats from the regime, I started having government officials ask questions of my family, I had my father arrested, so soon enough I knew that, you know, it was going to become difficult for me to return home, but that that's my beginning, that's that's where I came from. Thank you so much for that brief introduction into, into the journey, into the person that you've become today. So, And actually, to to lead on from one of your last points now, Freedom House lists Equatorial Guinea Mm. with a score of five in its Global Freedom Index, described by many, including yourself, as an authoritarian kleptocracy. What does this mean for the average citizen of EG? Yes. Thank you for that question. So, and, and, and one of the things that people should know, you know, is that in that list, at the bottom of that list of Freedom House, you know, are countries like Turkmenistan, North Korea, Eritrea, and Equatorial Guinea. And now I want to highlight that so people have a sense of, you know, the type of countries that we're talking about here. An authoritarian country, uh, you know, Equatorial Guinea being an authoritarian country, let's start with the part of authoritarian, means that for the last 50 years, to be exact, for the last 53 years since we gained independence, we have not had any period of democracy. We have not had any period in which citizens could elect their leaders, citizens could uh, have space to congregate and talk about anything, right? So we've been living under dictatorships since independence in 1968 from Spain, right? First we had uh, Francisco Macias for 11 years and then Teodoro Biang, his uh, nephew, killed him and took over since. And there haven't been any rights. And today what that means, you know, is that we have a government that is ruled by one single family, uh, and around that family, you know, you have a single party, the uh, Democratic Party of Equatorial Guinea, and you have all hand-picked judges, hand-picked by the president and his family members, at the service of this one family. So you have an entire regime built around that one family. And that family rules by thievery, by stealing from the people, and that's the kleptocracy part of it, right? They rule by thieves. Equatorial Guinea, many people might not know this, you know, it has the highest GDP per capita on the African continent because of the amount of oil and gas produced in that country and because of the small population of the country. But here you have a situation where despite that high GDP per capita on par with countries like the UK, for instance, we have the widest gap between income per capita and human development index. What that means is that most people in my country do not have running water. Most people do not have access to education. Most people do not have access to sanitation or, or healthcare. Right? Most people live in destitute poverty with less than $2 a day. Right? So that's exactly what means that you, know, you don't have any rights. You don't have any freedoms. You can be arbitrarily arrested anytime. You can be killed anytime. And on the other hand, despite living in this country with immense wealth, and you can see that by looking at the presidential family, you do not have running water. You do not have electricity. You do not have hospitals. You do not have schools. It's a deeply unfortunate situation, the one that you mentioned. And of course, 
we believe through the work that we do and the work that you do, of course, that we're trying to fulfill and to ensure that there's sustainable development, that there's accountable governance, that there's transparency in the systems that we exist in. And actually, the kleptocracy that you refer to is built, should not be seen as individualistic or should not be seen as, as one family. It's part of a wider system. Mm-hmm. And one thing across in the research that I did was your constant mention of Western enablers, Western professional enablers of this kleptocracy. Could you kindly elaborate for our audience? Yes. That's a very good question, and I hope there's an issue that more and more people pay attention to. In the case of Equatorial Guinea, these Western enablers start with oil companies that went to Equatorial Guinea in the early 90s, right? You had suddenly ExxonMobil, Amoreda Hess, uh, uh, Chevron, Marathon, all these oil companies coming to Equatorial Guinea in a place where there were no legal infrastructure to deal with the amount of money that was going to flock in, right? And in fact, many of these oil companies, or their lawyers rather, help uh, establish the laws that then would guide their operations inside the country. Many of these companies were able to take our government officials to these fancy trips in Houston, Texas, and uh, Austin, and Dallas, and different places in Texas where where they're headquartered, uh, dine and put them in yachts and hotels and what have you, fancy champagnes, to where then they were able to sign these contracts that right from the beginning ensure that, you know, people in Ecuador were going to remain poor, right? You know, when you look at the discrepancy between how much money is going to countries like Nigeria, Angola, oil producers in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, and you compare that to Equatorial Guinea, you see a huge imbalance, you know, and that is because of the oil companies or their lawyers that drafted these contracts. So it started right there, right? In terms of the kleptocracy, the thievery, I think most African kleptocrats do not, unfortunately, invest the money that they steal in Africa tends to be they buy mansions and they buy yachts and they buy luxury cars and all these different things abroad. In the case of Equatorial Guinea concretely, we have the two famous investigations by the U.S. Senate that unveiled that the president's family on uh, control about $700 million at Riggs Banks in Washington, D.C., that money was proven in the investigations from Senate was coming into the banks in suitcases, suitcases that the bank officers themselves were taking from the Equatorial Guinean embassy and bringing into the bank, right? That is enabling kleptocracy. There is an extensive amount of due diligence that these bankers are supposed to do when accepting that money. Right. You have to file all these suspicious activity reports. You have to notify uh, authorities in the countries, you know, whether that money is coming from people that particularly in the U.S. where, you know, there was a, a, a Patriot Act that was trying to ensure that, you know, you do not have countries financing terrorism. You have to file all this paperwork to ensure that, you know, this money is clean. That was not done and it was not done not out of uh, negligence or I forgot to do it. No, it was not done because they know where the money is coming from and the bank itself, the bankers themselves, and these are executive bankers. This is not the regular teller or the ATM machine. So the banks themselves were interested in having all this amount of cash come into the banks and stashed in a way that the peps, the politically exposed persons behind these accounts would not be found out. These banks themselves, once they were investigated, helped the government of Equatorial Guinea, the family, transfer all that money into shell accounts 
in Panama, in Monaco, in Spain. You know, so clearly, you know, here, you know, you have an active uh, or decisively active uh, uh, action by the by the bankers and by people around the bank to hide, conceal the source of this money and the destination of this money. About four years later, there was another Senate investigation that uh, looked into the activities of the son. And what they discovered you know, is that the son, the son of the president, had, through lawyers and accountants, taken about $100 million to the U.S., uh, which he used for the purchase of a Malibu mansion and private jet and a whole bunch of Michael Jackson stuff, gloves and jackets and stuff. But clearly, you know, you had a situation where the lawyer were willing to open bank accounts in many different places. And when, say, Bank of America would discover what was going on, he would transfer that from there to another bank, right? And so clearly there was an intention to help conceal the source of the money and where that money was going. That same lawyer helped create about 17 different companies in California with names such as a Sweet Pink, a Sweet Malibu Estate, all these different names that you couldn't find out who was behind to conceal who, where the money was coming from and what it was being used for. You know, so these are the people that I'm referring to as Western enablers. These are professionals who knows the laws knows all the different architecture, legal and regulatory uh, architecture that actually con controls their activities, yet they find ways to bypass all that control just to conceal the source of the money and the, the destination of these monies. It's a really, really robust system of corruption. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> to be very, very transparent in that regard. Of course, we're a policy institute at Chatham House, mm -hmm. and, and for us, uh, our work is about trying to find those policy remedies, those policy methods to ensure that situations like this don't occur and these systems like this are dismantled. Have you got any that you've been working on as course of part as EG Justice? Uh, there are a few things I think are critical here. One is figuring out, are there any legal mechanisms to hold this, first of all, the kleptocrats themselves accountable and the enablers accountable, right? In terms of the kleptocrats, you know, we've been trying many different things. Initially, you know, one of our ideas was to file a civil racketeering um, lawsuit in the U.S. where I reside. And there the challenge we ran into, you know, was finding willing clients based in Equatorial Guinea or, or injured, legally injured in Equatorial Guinea who would be willing to bring these cases. Right? And the challenge there is that anyone from Equatorial Guinea willing to assert a claim, a legal claim against a member of that kleptocracy is someone that could find themselves killed or find family members killed. So in the end, even though we had clients, we decided not to go forward because of safety concerns. Right? Nevertheless, we continue to find ways. And in that regard, we have been able to work uh, with U.S. authorities from the Department of Justice to go after the assets of the Sun. So eventually in 2007, I believe, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice brought a several assets forfeiture case against those assets. All the assets were seized. Theodorin, the vice president, managed to escape with the private jet and a whole bunch of other stuff, the cars and things that he could fit in the jet. However, the, the, the assets that were not movable, such as the housing, the, the, the mansion and, and others, those were able to be confiscated. The U.S. confiscated those and eventually they were uh, auctioned off. And those are the assets that then became part of the settlement and that uh, the U.S. and Theodorian reached. 
which was worth about $33 million. In France, similarly, all the assets there, an organization called Sherpa, uh, a legal organization, which had a client in Transparency International France, was able to bring a case, and eventually that case made it all the way to the Supreme Court in France, which upheld the conviction of Theodorin, criminal conviction, and the seizing of all the properties. Similarly, in Switzerland, most of the uh, private cars, uh, luxury cars that uh, Theodorin had there were seized. In fact, all of them were seized. They were all auctioned off. Theodorin managed to purchase them at an auction again. But at least the... Uh, there is about 25 million now in, in Switzerland that the Swiss government is trying to repatriate those assets. So there they have been ways in which legal mechanisms outside Equatorial Guinea have allowed to go after the assets or after the individuals, right? In the case of uh, the enablers, that remains a challenge. That remains a challenge. That's because internationally we haven't come up with enforceable mechanisms to hold these lawyers and these accountants and real estate agents accountable yet. And this is what this one of the big pushes, uh, one of the big issues that I'm still working on right now, right? How do we hold these individuals accountable? And I have to say there are some initiatives now, particularly in the U.S., where uh, lawmakers are beginning to look to see if laws, new laws can be passed, can be adopted to go after the enablers. You know, so I remain hopeful. That, no, that's a really interesting point and actually brings me directly to my to my next question, which is, in July, we saw the UK government mm-hmm. sanction the Vice President Thierry as yes. you just mentioned, and French courts uphold his conviction yes. um, for the misappropriation of state funds for his personal use, a trial that you testified that, if yes. I'm not mistaken. So what is the role of international actors and actually larger multilateral institutions yeah. in supporting efforts to bring justice in these matters? Yeah. So uh, I think that is a very good question, right? Because typically, you know, you would hope that our own judicial systems in our countries would be going after these kleptocrats. However, the fact remains that in places like Equatorial Guinea, the judiciary is basically uh, the, in, in the pocket of the of the regime. So you do not have a judiciary that is strong enough to go after them. So in that case, you know, it seems to me we have to rely on regional and international mechanisms that can hold these individuals accountable. And I have to say, for the last uh, five, perhaps ten, five years, there's been a movement afoot, you know, to figure out how to curb corruption around the world, you know. And now with the Magnitsky Act and similar acts being adopted around the world, there is an enforceable mechanism, an enforceable way to go after some of these kleptocrats, uh, both uh, those that are involved in heavy crimes of corruption, economic crimes, as well as those that are involved in human rights violations, right? So in, in, I have to say a Magnitsky case or the Magnitsky uh, situation in Russia has made it possible, as well as the Khashoggi and other uh, high-profile situations in which either journalists or, or in the case of Magnitsky lawyers have been killed, have been arrested by these uh, rogue regimes. It's still, in my mind, you know, it's still a problem that those of us in the global south, those of us in Africa specifically, have to come to the US, to France, to the UK, to EU, to Canada, Australia, and those other countries in the global north to seek a remedy for these atrocities committed by our uh, dictators and our kleptocrats in the global south. Uh, it seems to me there has to be a way in which the African Union, because I find it hard to believe that any of our own governments will take on that task, but it seems to me that the African Union has a role to play here to ensure that our countries are not 
impoverished, ravaged, and basically decimated by our own brothers and sisters who become political leaders, right? Um, the situation that we're describing here in Equatorial Guinea, I have to say, is not particular to Equatorial Guinea. If you live in Congo, Brazzaville, you've been living with the Sasson Gesso family for three decades now, and they've been doing exactly what Obiang is doing. If you live in Cameroon, Paul Bia has been there since the 80s, doing exactly the same thing. The uh, Omar Bongo family or the Ali Bongo family now in Gabon is doing the same exact thing. In Chad, you have... So you have all these countries, including places like, like Uganda and places like uh, Iswatini in, in, in Swaziland, and where we need the judiciary in our countries to step up, and they're not doing it. And we, I think, the next step is to see how, as Africans, you know, we get the African Union to play that role, to play that role of ensuring that corruption does not get out of hand and we are not um, impoverishing our own people in Africa. I think we're very happy to hear that because the Africa programme, of course, is, is focused around African agency, mm -hmm. African solutions for African problems and externalising many of our issues won't allow the, the, the solutions necessarily to come any quicker. Yeah, That's something that's very clear on our end. And actually... Something that I'd love to raise, and actually it's good that you raised the Magnitsky Act itself, is of course you were awarded the Magnitsky Award for Outstanding mm -hmm. Lawyer. But one thing you mentioned in your speech, because I was lucky enough to of course be at the award ceremony, was the people that you were working with. Yes. Those that weren't provided with, you know, the limelight or weren't given the opportunity to, to, to be awarded things because they have to remain in secret, they have exactly. to work. And, and I'd love for you to be able to elaborate, you know, not necessarily on those people's names, etc., but on the people that you work with in eg yes thank you and and i have to say you know that's another another serious issue in our countries right where most of us they're trying to do this work find ourselves in exile you know if you're going to do it openly with your name you know i've been living in the u.s now for 27 years not because i love the u.s but because i can go back to equatorial guinea should i go back to equatorial guinea i think you know i know what would happen to me right and you know that's the case of people like rafael marquez in angola that's the case of uh, of, of many of our colleagues working including in quasi rule of law countries like Kenya and other places where they find themselves having to either live uh, um, without a name anonymously or find themselves having to come here to the UK or go to the US, right? Yes, uh, precisely because I can't go home, there are a number of uh, lawyers and, and activists they have to rely on, right? When something happens in EG, in Equatorial Guinea, and I'm not there, there has to be someone that tells me, you know, look, this is what's going on, this is the evidence we have. Can we take it to the American Bar Association? Can we take it to the International Bar Association? Or can we file something with the uh, UN reporters and UN different groups? Or can we actually bring a suit against this and these individuals outside, you know? And that is a critical aspect of, of, of this work, right? I mean, I think those of us that come from, from African traditions, you know, we know the value of a community. We know the value. We know, we understand very well, you know, that it actually does take a village, right? Or it takes two hands to wash another. One hand cannot wash itself. So, yeah, so I rely on these lawyers on the ground. When someone is in prison, I can't go to prison. So there are people there, they're giving it all, they're risking it all to ensure that there is rule of law in Equatorial Guinea, to ensure that there is some justice, there is some accountability in Equatorial Guinea. And at the award, one of the things I was trying to do is precisely to bring those people to the room, right? We, me, you, those of us, they're able 
to have the freedom and the space to do this, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, and it's those giants that we have to thank and we have to recognize every time. So, Thank you so much, Tutu. It's been an incredible conversation, one that I'm sure has left me inspired and I'm sure will leave many of our audience members inspired. For those of you interested in following Tutu, please do inform our followers of, of your social media profiles and your website, etc. Yes, I am on Twitter at Tutu Alicante. So that's the ad sign and Tutu Alicante. And if you type Tutu Alicante, really, you should be able to get to our website, and which is egjustice.org. And you should be able to find me on other places. You know, I'm not very <laughs> present in TikTok and those places, but, you know, you should be able to find me in Facebook and other places, yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tutu. It's been a pleasure having you. Always a pleasure, Yusuf. Thank you very much. And that brings us to an end of this episode of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe to us on the platform you're listening to us on to ensure that you don't miss an episode. And do leave a review, as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thanks for listening to Africa Aware. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.